Pitchers and catchers have reported. Now it's your turn. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Leagues are now open. The Yahoo Fantasy app is the number one mobile app in fantasy baseball and the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Check out Yahoo Pro Leagues, public leagues where you play for cash. The best part is Yahoo handles all the money for you. No commissioner. Buy in for as little as $20 or as much as $1,000. You can also join a public league for free or create your own league with your friends. Flex your skills as a real GM. Trust your instincts or use access to the advanced analytics. Download the Yahoo Fantasy app or sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball. Don't miss out on this monster baseball season. There's never been a better time to play. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. On today's show, Ben Lindbergh, Zach Cram, and I will talk about the latest league news, chat about chicken, and finish our three-part trend series with a discussion on the evolution of the modern Major League pitcher. Uh, but first, you all should go to TheRinger.com where you can find Ben's series in which he dissects tens of thousands of old scouting reports from the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, and in more recent news, Katie Baker has risen to a challenge that seems designed specifically for her, writing an engagement announcement for Alex Rodriguez and his lovely fiance Jennifer Lopez. Please go check all of that out, as well as our Game of Thrones content, NFL free agency coverage, and much, much more. But without any further delay, here's Zach and Ben. All right, so I am, uh, I don't think entombed is too strong a word for my situation in this hotel uh, at spring training in Arizona. Uh, I'm in the closet, and joining me in this closet are a man who has just tunneled out of the Cincinnati Reds offices, Ben Lindbergh. Ben? Hello, you're on the road. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hot in here. <laughs> and joining us is a man who has just falsified his children's uh, high school transcripts to get them into the University of Southern California, Zach Cram. Zach. Topical reference. I know. <laughs> I. That's the one thing I wish I could like really dive into this Felicity Huffman, Lori Laughlin scandal. Um, but that might just be the, the one thing that I don't have time to, to care about right now. Um, one thing I do have time to care about is uh, the big baseball news of the week out of Arlington, Texas. The Texas Rangers will be selling a two-foot-long chicken tender uh, at their ballpark this year. Um, the chicken tender will be uh, served on a bed of waffle fries. Uh, guys, your thoughts on, I don't know, what I really can only describe as a Concord moment for human evolution. <laughs> I am famous for consuming vast quantities of chicken in various, in certain circles. My in-laws once at the holidays just gathered around and watched as I devoured a, a bowl of chicken. And even I, looking at a picture of this chicken tender, am kind of cowed by the idea of eating this thing. How many chickens do you think died to bring us this tender? That's a, a great question. I how much does a chicken weigh? I mean, this God. I mean, the, 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 what's a hen weigh? About five pounds. Um, that's got to be like an entire chicken's worth of meat, at least, right? It must be. I just think it gets the breading to meat ratio all wrong. If you think about the ideal ratio for a chicken tender, if you just have, you know, it's like the volume versus surface area question, which is super important for a baseball podcast. But that was the first thought that struck me when I saw this picture. It looks like, do you remember that like long skinny thing that was approaching Earth from space that people were saying was an alien space <laughs> spaceship? Like this yes. was in the news a couple months ago. That's yeah. what this looks like. Uh, this this uh, culinary uh, creation, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it's called the Fowl Pole, 
which That's feels the best thing like about it. great name. It feels like an obvious pun, but you know, sometimes you have to do the obvious thing. We've been talking all mm-hmm. off season about how doing the obvious thing is the best team for best thing for teams. So including uh, obvious bird puns. I'm sure this chicken tender would kill you if you were to eat it regularly or attempt to, but it, it's probably one of the healthiest <laughs> options available at Ballpark <laughs> in Arlington, as far as I can tell, based on the other Rangers menu items that I've seen over the years. Yeah, I was uh, discussing discussing this uh, at dinner with a couple other uh, writers last night, one of whom tried to eat an entire chicken in one sitting, actually. Um, and my thing is, like, if you come into the... If you come into eating the foul pole and you're too hungry, you'll just fill up because your stomach will shrink. And so, you, like, the balance of of expanded stomach and hunger that you would need to take this entire thing down, uh, that's got to be the biggest challenge for me. Yeah, you should have Mark Normandon back on the podcast to I know, talk about is... how he would go about eating this because this is kind of his his reason for being. He did an entire series at SB Nation about going from ballpark to ballpark, ballpark and trying to keep items like this down, not always successfully. So he'd probably have some tips and tricks. Yeah, this is uh, this is not something that I would eat in a ballpark seat. I feel like you need a table and utensils to to dismantle this into edible sizes. And uh, it's not something, frankly, that I would eat with access to only ballpark bathrooms, not to put too fine a point on it. (laughs) Is this a baseball thing that, uh, is is it a a baseball-specific thing that these just enormous, disgusting food items are on sale and become big stories? You follow other sports. You can tell me what other sports are like. Is it a baseball thing because there are so many baseball games and there's so much downtime during baseball that you could conceivably eat something like this? Or is it everywhere because this is America? Uh, that must be it. I can't I can't really speak to football. Um, I wonder, you know, just off the top of my head, I would imagine there's something of a picnic atmosphere to to baseball you know the slow pace but you're also outside during the summer and so like you know you don't feel like you would want to eat two pounds of chicken in one sitting at an nhl game for instance um (laughs) so i yeah i can't think of it does feel like there's at least one of these food items in half the stadiums in major league baseball and like a several dozen other minor league and and college ballparks but um yeah, I can't think of a, a hockey or basketball or, or football or soccer analog to this. If I'm wrong, please uh, feel free to, to write into the show or, or tweet at us. I, I am a connoisseur of stunt foods, so uh, I, I'm happy to, to be corrected on this. Zach, uh, you uh, famously made me eat a disgusting stunt food uh, at the World Series two years ago. Um, could you take this down on your own? Uh, you've been lying about that for over a year now. I did not make you do anything. I was not the editor who assigned you to eat that. Uh, I even forget what it was at this point. Something with a waffle for content. Yeah, chicken and waffles. Yeah, so I could not do this by myself. Um, however, I don't think I have the gall to even try, so I, I'm a man who knows his limits. Well, when we uh, take our, the three of us take our field trip to uh Ballpark at Arlington this season, we will we might take this down together. We might find a, a picnic table or something. Now, at, down to actual baseball news. Um, Adam Jones has signed with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He was one of the last wave of free agents. Um, it's sort of a complicated, uh, it's a, a one-year, I believe, $3 million deal. Uh, it's sort of a complicated situation because everybody seems to like Adam Jones. He's a, you know, quote-unquote, respected veteran, really outspoken 
Uh, I think, you know, we would all agree positive force on the game, but he's sort of slipping as a player and he's, he fell through that crack where he's not really a center fielder anymore. I don't know if he's going to hit well enough to, um, to hold up in a corner. Um, you know, he's still, I would imagine a good clubhouse presence and, a um, you know, the, the kind of guy that, uh, uh, the diamondbacks could use, but it, you know, he's, he's had a rough go of it this off season. Yeah, and I think he's kind of been lumped in with some other players who've been victims of the new free agency. And, you know, we've talked about Yasmani Grandal, or you could talk about maybe some of the guys who are still on the market, and and we will, Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimbrell, guys like that. But Jones, I think, is past that point in his career. He obviously was an excellent player for a few years, and he was a leader, and he was beloved by Orioles fans. But this point, he is a, a limited player. I, I think he still has some utility because if you take him out of center field and put him in a corner, which I think he's more capable of playing at this point, he can still give you some value, I think. But he's basically a, a league average hitter, perhaps, and not really a, an asset anywhere else other than perhaps the clubhouse. So I think in this era where teams are evaluating players based on what they're projected to do more so than what they've done in the past he was always going to have a tough time. So I'm not sure that there is a way that you could restructure baseball's economic system that would get a player like Adam Jones paid at this point. He's never really been a guy who walks much. His on-base percentage has always been around like 320 or so. And it wasn't that much different last year when his on-base percentage was 313. The problem is his power went away in a big way. And maybe that's because the ball changed, whatever. But he only hit 15 home runs, which was his lowest total since 2008. Uh, his slugging percentage went down a commensurate amount. So kind of like Ben said, he doesn't really check off any of the boxes teams are necessarily looking for at this point, whether he walks or hits for power or can play center field. That said, I think uh, going to a National League team makes a lot of sense for him because he can start or he can you know, fill in in a pinch hitting role where teams don't really employ designated pinch hitters anymore, but Jones can still hit against lefties late games, uh, adding him to an outfield that isn't necessarily either fully healthy or fully established, I think makes sense. And he'll still probably get his, you know, 450, 500 at bats. Uh, but you kind of know what you're getting from him at this point. And the guys who have gotten paid this offseason, I think the trend has been they have the potential for a lot of upside even if they haven't necessarily proven it before. Someone like Joe Kelly got a pretty decent contract from the Dodgers, Nathan Eovaldi from the Red Sox. And even though they don't have established track records, you can look at them and squint and see, okay, if everything goes right, then they could be you know, really uh, impactful players. They could be all-stars. And I'm not sure if Jones checks that box anymore. So I think if there's a trend he fits, it's Yes, the you know disappearance of the 30-year-old veteran, but also what teams are actually looking for in the free agent market. Yeah, you hit on something, Zach, uh, that I was curious about. I wonder if if the the pitcher to position player balance on rosters is causing, you know, if, if Adam Jones would have had an easier time finding a job, if teams were running a five or six man bench rather than, you know, in some cases a backup catcher, one backup outfielder, one backup infielder. Um, Cause he seems like the kind of guy who, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Jason Giambi and Jim Tomey had like three or four years of uh, extended careers as part-time player coaches. And they were much, you know, much older, much 
less defensively useful than Jones is right now. You know, if you could have two, you know, two platoon outfielders on your bench, I wonder if if he could have if he would have signed earlier and maybe for more. Yeah, the problem with Jones, I think, is that he isn't really a big platoon split guy. So he's just kind of an average hitter overall, and he doesn't really mash lefties or something. So even in a more limited role, he doesn't really slot in that well. And because he doesn't play center, he can't cover all the outfield spots, at least not well. So I think you'd have to have a pretty big bench to have him on it, basically, at at this point. And, And you're right that benches have been shrinking, which only makes it more difficult. Yeah, and there was the uh, the rumor going around. I think this came out like right after we recorded last week that the league and the union are are considering a compromise to uh, expand the the rosters to twenty six um, throughout the regular season and uh, shrink the the roster uh, in September. Um, so it, you know we'll obviously talk about that as as that story develops and and we get more concrete details. But you know I'm, the the shortened bench it's just. We're going to talk about uh, this when we're we're talking about our pitcher evolution thing later in the show, um, but it's just a, a bummer. Like I like to see more position players on the bench. Like that feels more tactically useful than just having you know seven right-handed relief pitchers who can all throw ninety-seven and all you know all throw uh, similar profiles. And mm-hmm. you know it it makes the the game I think a little bit more interesting. And you know maybe there's not a a place for Adam Jones at that point in his career, but it's a you know it's a a little bit of a shame to see him have to to wait to this point to to find employment. Um, so on the other end of, I was going to say the other end of his career, Adam Jones is only thirty three. Death comes for <laughs> us all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are a couple of the the best and brightest uh, teenaged uh, uh, stars in baseball uh, have gone on the shelf this week. Uh, Zach, why don't you tell us what happened to Vladimir Guerrero and Joe Adele? Well, as we all knew, Vlad Guerrero. Uh, is not going to start the roster or start the season on Toronto's opening day roster. What we did not expect is that uh, this is because Vlad Jr. has gotten hurt and not solely because the Blue Jays were planning to manipulate his service time by pretending he's not ready to be an MLB player. Vlad hurt his oblique, and it seems like it's the most minor way you can hurt an oblique, which is, I guess, good for him and for all of us uh, who want to watch Vlad and also for the Blue Jays who now have an excuse not to call him up right away because uh, he'll be out for three weeks, which will take him basically up through the end of spring training. Uh, Vlad wasn't hitting that well in spring training thus far, but like we've all seen his minor league numbers and we've seen his performance and it's very clear he's ready to hit right now. So I guess the best hope at this point is that he'll you know spend his three weeks rehabbing and then spend a couple weeks getting his at-bats in and then be up basically by when he was going to be up in mid-April anyway and hope this doesn't linger any longer. Yeah, and then uh, over on the other side of the country, Joe Adele had a freak a freak injury, uh, popped his hamstring uh, running the bases and then sort of tripped and fell on his opposite side ankle. Uh, so this happened over the weekend and I uh, went into Angel's camp on Sunday and he came in and sort of explained it while he was standing there on crutches. Uh, he'll be out, I mean, he'll be out 10 to 12 weeks. I mean, he's... I think gone under the radar a little bit just because there's been so much tension around guys like Vlad Jr. and, and Fernando Tatis. Um, Adele is a top 10 prospect. He's an outfielder, incredible athlete um, who's just really jumped off the board in the past year or so um, and has turned, you know, turned into one of the top five or 10 prospects in baseball who, you know, I think it, certainly before the injury had a chance to contribute to the Angels this year. And it's just another... Um, 
instance of the Angels sort of running into, uh, you know, running into signing Shohei Otani or, or Angelton Simmons learning how to hit or, you know, Adele, who was you know, sort of a raw prospect, figures it out and puts it all together and has a chance to contribute. And it's the combination of like, of uh, potential being dangled in front of them and then taken away. And it's it's just kind of a shame to see that. Yeah, I can't speak to whether this is right and accurate or not, but Baseball Prospectus had him as the number two prospect in all of baseball this spring. Yeah, the BP guys really like him. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody else is, I mean, that's not, I think they're the high uh, the mm-hmm. high group on him, but it's, yeah. He's it's not number like six at Baseball America. A so total it's not outlier. Like, yeah. yeah. And obviously it's a, a tough spot for a prospect to be a, a center fielder for the team that has Mike Trout. That means you have to move. There's no displacing Trout for now. So he could still have been valuable and he probably will be at some point. He's an exciting player. But everyone, all eyes are on Vlad, and and I don't think that this gets the Blue Jays off the hook in any way because we all knew what was happening. It happened last year. It was going to happen this year. They were already saying things and laying the groundwork. I'm sure now they wish that they had pretended he was going to be up maybe so that they could claim that he's only not up because of this oblique strain, but no one would buy that. So it takes a little bit of the heat off of them just in the sense that we won't be asking the questions about his absence on opening day. But I think we all understood what was going to happen here. Yeah. And, you know, as far as maybe I'm overstating, you know, he only played 17 games at double A. Adele did last year. So, you know, he's obviously not as big league ready as some of these other prospects. But, you know, in terms of displacing Trout, you know, Trout played a lot of left field when he came up because Peter Borges was in center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the that was the one year that he put up the kind of freaky, I don't know, like, Mookie Betts comes up and plays right field because Jackie Bradley's in center. You get a center fielder, put him in a corner, he's going to put up freakish defensive numbers. Um, and so, you know, maybe there's a possibility that Adele does this, you know, probably not this year at this point, but maybe next year. Um, so that's a guy who I think really should be on a lot of people's radar. And maybe he's not for for whatever reason, unless you're like really into prospects. And so in terms of actual big leaguers getting hurt, Kyle Seeger uh, showed up in camp with uh uh, his finger in a bandage and a splint, he's going to have um, surgery to repair an injured tendon on his left hand. He's going to miss the month of April. Uh, it's a shame because Seeger had kind of a down year. He, you know, was struggling with injuries on and off. This could have been an opportunity for him to bounce back. And, you know, we're sort of right back where we where we started with him. But at the same time, it's not like the Mariners are going anywhere. And Seeger had declared himself to be in the best shape of his life, which makes this even more unfortunate for him because he was primed for that bounce back. And <laughs> he had done it all. He had he was in the best shape of his life in every way you possibly can be. He was like a new diet, a new exercise routine. He was doing flexibility stuff, all kinds of conditioning. And he even showed up and his uniform was too baggy because he had lost all this weight and had this new trim frame. And now he gets hurt anyway. So that is unfortunate for him. Hate to see it a best shape of his life or derailed getting in shape appears to be overrated because even if you do you're just gonna rip your hand apart Mm -hmm. all right i think that's that's most of the major league news uh i think we should talk about the atlantic league has signed a deal with major league baseball to sort of serve as a test bed uh for various um various experimental measures that MLB has been floating to try to influence the pace or the style or, or balance of the game. Um, some of the highlights, uh, they're, they're testing out a robotic umpire system. Uh, they're increasing the size of the bases. They're reducing the time between innings. They're uh, allowing fewer mound visits. But the big one, which is one that we've talked about uh, in 
in several forms. They're moving the mound back and they're moving it two feet. So Zach, what do you what do you make of the mound moving back two feet? That's a huge distance change. I think when we've talked about it, I'm not sure. I think nobody really is 100% sure on what the effects would be, but I'm of the opinion that like moving the mound back six inches to make it an even 61 feet, I think that would have a huge effect. So moving it back a full two feet, I think would reap like a, a huge change. And beyond that, there's been some discussion that implementing so many changes at once will make it rather difficult to study what the effects of each change is. And I think that's a problem from like a rigorous scientific perspective that if you're adding robot umps and you're eliminating mound visits, those could have interactive effects that compound each other and increase run scoring. And I think there are a lot of little things with this experiment that don't necessarily make the most sense to me. I think in addition, moving the mound back and adding robo-umps and adding all these other things specifically designed to pitching make me wonder if uh, pitchers will want to leave the Atlantic League and go play in the Frontier League or some other indie ball uh, locale if they're able because they won't want to have to deal with the changes. So I'm also curious about what kind of player pool will be playing under these changes and you know, will they produce different results than major league players would? Ben, you've got more indie ball experience than... <laughs> the next you know 50 people i know is you know will people flee because the atlantic league is is at the top at or near the top of the pyramid yeah, right you for know, me I, I was in the pacific association helping run a team and so the atlantic league was like bright lights that was so far away inconceivable the atlantic league is full of players who were recently in the majors and some who are about to be in the majors so I think that what Zach is saying has some merit that some players are going to look at this and think, I don't want to be part of this wacky baseball science experiment. I'll just go somewhere else. On the other hand, I think it will help bring attention to them. And it will also ensure that there's data on everything they do because there's going to be TrackMan systems installed in all the Atlantic League ballparks. And that's pretty important for players who are trying to get back into affiliated ball because you want to have something concrete you can show teams. So in principle, I really like this experiment. I think it's good that MLB is trying to test out some of these ideas instead of just talking about it endlessly and never actually doing anything. I think I have a few quibbles with the implementation. One, as Zach mentioned, just doing it all at once makes it a little bit difficult to evaluate each individual measure. And the mound thing, I really like trying that out, but it is a bit extreme. Two feet seems like a lot to begin with. And also, I don't like that we're lumping in banning the shift or attempting to ban the shift with all these other measures, which individually I think are smart and might accomplish what they're designed to do. But as we have probably all talked about and written about somewhere at some point, I don't think banning the shift is something that would actually have the effect that people think it would have. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about th this is like a, a laundry list of things that you and I have just sort of spitballed over the the course of the past few years on the pod. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's a bigger proponent of moving the mound back just to see what happens because I, you know, it seems like an obvious thing that that is almost so extreme that you'd. I'm I'm glad that Major League Baseball in some way is willing to to consider it, but moving it back two feet at once, like I was thinking about moving it back maybe three inches a year for, you know, for three or four years until you get the, you know, till, till you get it to a spot that you want, moving it back two feet all at once. 
it it like it's so extreme it almost seems like they're they're tanking the experiment on purpose <laughs> yeah it's pretty aggressive can i highlight one more change that has been uh, more under the radar than those like big changes that have been discussed before but i think is really interesting is increasing the base sizes so the bases right now are 15 inches square and this proposal will have an experiment where the bases will now be 18 inches square, which is kind of a fun get around because everyone knows that it's 90 feet to each base. But if you make the bases bigger then that effectively reduces the actual distance a runner needs to cover on, say, a stolen base. So do you think this will have an actual effect on uh, increasing the likelihood that people run or if not? How big could we make a base that actually increases stolen bases? Oh, boy. <laughs> that feels like a Sam Miller question. <laughs> yes. Um, the one interesting thing, so as anybody who has ordered a lot of pizza in their life knows, like you can increase the uh, the radius or the... Um, <laughs> or the, the linear size of, of a two-dimensional object by a little, but get a lot of increase in volume. And that's that's really what this sort of feels like to me. Um, that feels like the the biggest uh, impact is going to be in terms of player safety. Because it just means there's just going to be a ton more real estate for, say, the first baseman to put his heel on the bag and the uh, the runner to run through. Like, we see, like, the the bang-bang play at first base is, is sort of a, an underrated, dangerous play just because you see guys, you know, blow out ankles or, or slip or collide. And um, It's easier you know, to if, avoid it, Manny Machado's spikes now with a bigger base. Yeah. And, you know, the same thing goes at second base. There's more room for, you know, that's three extra inches on a side for uh, for a base dealer or base runner to slide into. You know, it'll probably reduce collisions, maybe not like perceptively to the na- naked eye, but I think there will be a, a considerable aggregate effect. And, you know, we're shortening the the distance between bases, like Zach said, and how many of these stolen base plays are decided at six inches or less. Mm-hmm. So if it encourages more aggressive base running, I'm all for it. Yeah, it also gives you a, a bigger target to try to slide into, and it makes it easier to stay on the base once you slide into it, which I think is good because we all hate the the plays where you slide in and then pop up just because momentum carries you off the bag. This would make it a little easier, I think, to maintain contact. So yeah, I mean, stolen bases are down. They're not at historic lows. No one stole any bases in the 50s and 60s, but relative to recent years, recent decades, stolen bases are down and stolen bases are exciting. So I think anything you can do with a a minimum of intrusion to give guys greater incentive to go, I like it. It's interesting because it like everything in baseball from the shift to uh you know the high strikeout game to to uh the three you know three true outcomes versus a more contact oriented game it seems like you can't find two big baseball fans with uh with entirely congruent opinions on the aesthetics of the game but i don't know that i know anybody who says i don't like stolen bases yeah. like there's a a strategic argument uh that you know, being over aggressive obviously is bad or that it might wear down a player over over the course of time. Like this might be a reason why Mike Trout, for instance, is not going to, you know, have 700 career stolen bases just because he's more valuable if he saves that wear and tear on his body. But just in terms of being fun to watch, I don't know anybody who who doesn't like uh, watching stolen base attempts. It's one of the most exciting plays in the game. That's why the Royals are going to be my favorite team to watch this year as they lose 115 games. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, I'm glad someone's going to be watching the Royals. Um, back to important news, uh, J-Lo and A-Rod got engaged. 
<laughs> baseball's power couple. Alex Rodriguez joining a very select uh, group of, of Major League Baseball superstars who uh, are engaged to or married to women who are more famous than them. I, I support this wholeheartedly. Katie Baker wrote about wrote a big, uh, well, first of all, she did uh, an engagement announce, announcement that's up on the site today, which is hilarious, and I recommend you read it. But uh, when she profiled A-Rod, this would have been at the end of the 2017 season. Uh, he and J-Lo were, were first starting to go out. And, you know, it seems like they're in love and it's nice. And yeah. I'm just very happy for them. Yeah. I'm not normally the type to get deeply invested in celebrity relationships. No, but... <laughs> surely not. That's that's <laughs> but, shocking. But I've really been rooting for these two and I continue to. I think they're going to make it. They seem like a, a great match. They've kind of been in each other's orbits a little bit for a while now and they connected after they've had some life experiences and lots of relationships and lots of steroid suspensions and here they are meeting in their 40s and they have found love and I believe it this is not a sham relationship unlike some others that I know you continue to believe are this we're not one, talking about that on the pod <laughs> this one continues to seem genuine and I buy it and I think it's going to be a lasting relationship I wish them the best. What you said about them meeting each other or, you know, finding love in their 40s, I think is my favorite part of this because they were both famous enough in the late 90s, early 2000s that this could have been, you know, superstar athlete and pop superstar and actress. Like that seems like the kind of celebrity couple that you would find in like, I don't know, like this would have made sense as a celebrity couple in 2002. And Mm -hmm. the fact that they're getting together now is like, I think that's what I like best about it. Yeah. This is not for the the paps. This is this is sincere. All right. So this is a this feels like a good time to take a break. Uh, so we're gonna hear a couple words from our sponsors, and then the three of us are gonna come back and finish our uh trend series with a discussion about the evolution of the pitcher and how it's you know, pitcher usage, pitcher training are different now than they were even five years ago. So I uh, hope you enjoy that discussion. That's gonna be coming up right after the break. Are you still looking for that new batter glove before hitting the diamond for the new season? Baseball Express has you covered. Baseball Express features the largest selection of bats, gloves, cleats, and apparel. For nearly 30 years, they've provided the best performance gear at reasonable prices for baseball and softball players of all ages and skill levels. And they carry all the major brands, Easton, Louisville Slugger, Rawlings, Wilson, New Balance, DeMarini, and more. They're dedicated to providing the best customer service and shopping experience possible. Your complete satisfaction is their goal. Baseball Express also offers free shipping on all orders of $75 or more, as well as free returns on every order. Visit BaseballExpress.com today for a special offer only for listeners of the Ringer MLB show. Enter promo code RINGER20 and receive 20% off your offer. That's promo code RINGER20 for 20% off at BaseballExpress.com. Baseball Express, the game you love, the gear you need, the price you want. The Ringer MLB show is also brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. Pitchers and catchers have reported. Now it's your turn. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Leagues are now open. The Yahoo Fantasy app is the number one mobile app in fantasy baseball and the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Check out the Yahoo Pro Leagues, public leagues where you play for cash. The best part is Yahoo handles all the money for you. No commissioner. Buy in for as little as $20 or up to $1,000. You can also join a public league for free or create your own league with your friends. The new weekly scoring format makes it even easier to run your team all season. So you can flex your skills as a real GM, you trust your instincts, or use access to analytics. Find your sleepers or stash some minor league talent. Top 10 prospects for each MLB team are available. Use the Set Active Players feature to set your lineup for the week in just one tap. 
Download the Yahoo Fantasy app or sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball. Create your own league, join a public league, renew your league from last year. Just don't miss out on this monster baseball season. There has never been a better time to play Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. All right, we're back. And uh, Zach said during the break that Ben should just do a reading from his forthcoming book. So, uh, you know, (laughs) that feels like a, a good place to start. Take it away, Ben. Well, I I did co-write a a forthcoming book. It's called The MVP Machine. comes out in June. It's about player development and about how players today are making use of all this new technology and data to improve themselves. And it's not specifically about pitchers, but it is, I would say, more about pitchers than it is about hitters, just because I think the weight of analytics and technology has sort of swung toward pitchers more than hitters. Hitting is kind of a reactive thing. Pitching, you can decide what you want to do and what you want to throw and where you want to throw it. And so we've really seen pitcher development change in drastic ways. I think everyone knows the famous stories of guys who maybe started throwing a pitch much more often and got way better, like Rich Hill or Patrick Corbin more recently. But you're seeing this all over the game, really, where, I mean, name a a camp, you're probably seeing it in Arizona right now. Every team has high-speed, high-definition cameras set up and Rapsodo and TrackMan devices that monitor spin rate. And it's just more and more possible to perfect a pitch in a way that just was not feasible before because you couldn't see how a ball came out of a pitcher's hands. Now you can see exactly how the fingers are arrayed on the seams. You can tweak that so that you can just throw one pitch and say, okay, what movement, what spin rate did I get on that pitch? Oh, that's not quite what I wanted. So now I'll shift my fingers very slightly and I'll try it again. And you just make your way closer and closer to the perfect pitch that you're envisioning. And this is happening on a a league-wide scale. And it's bad news for hitters because not only can every pitcher seemingly now throw 95 or more, But now it's becoming more about spin and about efficient spin and harnessing every little bit of talent you have in order to be a more effective pitcher. And so coupled with all of the changes that we'll talk about in pitcher usage and deploying pitchers in more optimal, efficient ways, it's getting really hard to be a hitter in baseball these days. Zach, what is, if you had to pick one way in which pitchers are different now than they were five years ago, what what stands out to you most? Honestly, I think it is just the usage. Uh, looking at like just 200 inning pitchers, which is, sir, an arbitrary round number, but that's a common term you would use. Oh, that guy's a 200 inning pitcher. Well, just five years ago, we had 34 pitchers reach 200 innings. You know, 10, 20 years ago, that was usually in the 50s. Uh, but still, just five years ago, there were 34 pitchers who reached that benchmark. Last year, there were only 13. That's less than one for every other team who's even reaching 200 innings. And I think just that change in usage and the recognition that pitchers might do better in differently timed stints has such a carryover effect to basically every other aspect of pitching. You can throw you know, your pitches faster if you're only going for five innings instead of seven. You can uh, throw with a higher maximum velocity. You can change uh with the bullpen usage and you need more pitchers who can go like two innings instead of just getting two outs at a time and i think that's had such a a ripple effect across every aspect of the sport and and really stemming from the realization that 
a pitcher going the third time through the order after he reaches like 100 pitches just isn't going to be as effective as one of your eight relievers who can throw 97 miles an hour has led to a lot of these other changes. Yeah, and those trends are not new. Those are as old as as baseball trends go, really. You can go back to the 19th century, and pitchers obviously have been pitching fewer and fewer innings and making fewer starts all that time. But I think the last two or three seasons really is almost a, a separate era, in a sense, because we've seen all those trends tick up much more steeply than we had before, where you do have fewer pitchers making all of those starts, reaching those innings thresholds, facing hitters the third time in a game. I think that is largely a, a product of just how we've seen this infusion of statistical thinking in dugouts and kind of a mind meld between front offices and field staff where now you just don't even have that mentality of I'm going to try to finish the game. Everyone accepts that that's not going to happen. And so we've just seen such an explosion in pitchers used per game. Obviously, trends like the opener are kind of one manifestation of that, but I just don't know where it ends because none of these trends are reversing themselves, which I think is why we're now talking about rule changes like potentially limiting the number of pitchers you can have on your active roster or having some minimum batters faced per outing. Yeah, and the I mean, the big standout thing for me is sort of it's the thing that was enabled by what you were talking about, Ben, and it's sort of, and it's the cause of of Zach's thing about uh, the reduction, you know, the change in pitcher usage. It's not that, you know, the strikeout rate, like you said, is always going up and, and guys are always throwing harder and pitchers generally over the course of baseball history will throw fewer innings, although that's not, it's not as linear a trend uh, as say the strikeout rate. It's the number of, you turn it, turn on a game and and it's the seventh inning, and a guy who you've seen a billion times before is thrown 97 with a killer slider. Mm-hmm. And they're just falling out of trees now. And it's, you know, it's it's enabled by, you know, I, I talked to a couple relievers yesterday, you know, to prepare for this segment. And um, Anthony Swarzak of the Mariners uh, was talking about how the, you know, the use of the high-speed cameras and, and uh, you know, tracking spin rate, it's making it easier to coach because you can see the effect within a pitch from the grip to the release to the mechanics to the location to the spin rate to the result. And, you know, where you were once, where coaches were once operating sort of on their own internal large-end database of experience, now they can point to specific things which makes it easier to get buy-in from the players. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, I feel like we we hit an inflection point where it, it's like the the computer revolution where suddenly we've got so much information and so much knowledge and it's just compounding on itself. Yeah. Um, and that's enabled, you know, the A's to to do the opener in a playoff game, for instance, or the, or the Rays to, to win 90 games using, uh, you know, having essentially like one and a half good starting pitchers or Blake Snell to, to win the, the Cy Young award with fewer than uh, 200 innings pitched, which is uh, a, a historical aberration. And it's just the, like, that's the big thing. Just got middle relievers with great stuff are just, you know, they're, they're coming out of the woodwork nowadays. And that's the, uh, yeah, that's sort of a middle point. Like I said, in the chain between the technological and training advances that are, uh, enabling these these players to um, to develop into 
effect of major league pitchers and then all the knock-on effects. Yeah. There's a lot less trial and error involved in player development now than there used to be. It's a much more scientific, directed, data-backed process. And I think it is easier to convince players to adopt all this stuff. A, because they could see something tangible, and B, because there are all these stories of guys who have totally changed the trajectory of their careers. And you see one of your teammates or one of your rivals do that, and you're going to at least give it a shot. And not that it's easy to be a major league reliever or even easy to find one, but there's just a much larger pool of players who could potentially be a shutdown seventh or eighth inning guy who has like one devastating pitch because that's all you need really to have that role. You just need one really nasty slider and something else that can just kind of be your get me over alternative to that. And there are a lot more people who have one really nasty pitch like that than have the full starting pitcher skill set where you can get through a lineup multiple times. And so that's why we're seeing in a given year, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of relievers floating in and out of major league bullpens. And they're almost interchangeable because they all sort of have one of these nasty pitches that's really hard to hit. And some of these guys don't necessarily know that they have the potential to be that. Like I was talking to Brian Bannister, who is a, a big wig in player development, pitcher development specifically for the Red Sox. He's also their assistant pitching coach. And he was talking about how he'll see a guy who has, say, a, a 50 or a 60 pitch on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. It's a good pitch, but he doesn't even realize that it has the potential to be a 70 or 80 pitch because maybe he has good spin, but he's just not harnessing that spin fully in a way that gets the, the most wicked movement on it. And so you can just have a, a few sessions with him in the bullpen with a Rapsodo device and an Edgertronic camera, and suddenly he is kind of using the same skill that he had, but he's applying it much more efficiently. And suddenly he's unhittable and every team seems to have those guys now. So it's really difficult, I think, to counter that if you're a hitter. I'm kind of conflicted about whether this is kind of what we'll continue to see or whether it will evolve even further. I think with something like velocity, I'm not sure if it will continue to increase. Uh, Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs wrote a piece last month about how uh, the title is The Velocity Surge Has Plateaued, about how the decade from like 2007 to 2016, you saw this huge increase that we've been talking about. Uh, but then over the last couple of seasons, velocity has basically stayed the same league-wide. You have the same number of pitchers who are able to throw 95. And that's because at this point, I think teams have become really efficient at selecting like any player who's able to do that and succeed. Uh, but on the, so, you know, that has, has maybe plateaued, but on the other hand, I think with pitcher usage, we will continue to see the evolution. The opener was a big deal last year, but basically only the Rays did it for the full season. A couple teams dabbled in it toward the end of the year. I think we'll see that a lot more this season, a lot more going forward. And I don't know if that's good for the game. I happen to really enjoy the strategic elements of the opener. It's the kind of thing I would do in like baseball video games. But I think from an aesthetic perspective, there are legitimate arguments against it. So I, you know, we, that's been kind of a theme of this off season already is the, the disagreement and the discrepancy between strategy and aesthetics. And I wonder if with pitching specifically, we'll continue to see that disparity widen. Yeah. I wonder if that's, that's partially just the result of what you were saying earlier, that there are just fewer 
aces, you know? Like, I love a pitcher's duel. I love Max Scherzer versus Clayton Kershaw or Justin Verlander versus Chris Sale with the, you know, with the pennant on the line. Like, you know, that's not going to change. I, you know, there are just 15 of those guys now instead of 30. And so, you know, I think pitchers who who can be the 30-start, 220-inning ace uh, will continue to, to be allowed to operate that way for the foreseeable future. Um, but it's just a process of as the pool of pitchers who can perform on that level in short spurts increases and the more of the roster is devoted to pitchers like that, uh, teams are going to try to build a, a Verlander out of spare parts within the course of the game. Um, and I think that's that's what we're seeing. I think there's, a, honestly, like, there's a place for both as some as somebody who is in some ways very traditional about what I like about baseball aesthetics. Um, but also, you know, I'm interested in, in what the next thing is. And the other thing is, and this goes back to our Atlantic League conversation, the people who run Major League Baseball are realizing that they have the capacity to direct the evolution of the game. And baseball has traditionally been uh, been reluctant to uh, to sort of nudge the the evolution of the sport in one direction or other. And I think they're figuring out that they, you know, they're they're answering the question of how how they want to do it and what direction they want it to go. So, you know, I I'm intrigued by to, you know, to see the the evolution of the sport and its athletes, but I'm also interested to see, you know, what the league thinks is the the best way to to go about changing the game for for the 21st century. Yeah, and it has to do something because a lot of these trends are just such long-term ones that I don't think you can just sit back and say, uh, let the players figure it out and it's, you know, cat and mouse. And uh, there are certain things that I think that might apply to, like the shift, for instance, but we're at, what, 12, 13 consecutive seasons of rising strikeout, I think, strikeout rate to say nothing of the even longer-term trend. And the incentives for players and teams are just pointing in that direction. And so you have these misaligned incentives where, of course, pitchers want to get strikeouts and teams want to get pitchers who want to get strikeouts, but that is maybe not in the best interest of baseball. I think there are just a lot of things that you can do to reverse that trend or at least halt what we've seen, whether it is some of the changes with the Atlantic League we were just talking about or you know, changing the size of the strike zone or deadening the ball. There are all sorts of things you can do. And the league just hasn't really shown any willingness to do anything at all for almost the past 30 years when it comes to all of that. So I think we're getting to the point now where they're accepting that, okay, yeah, this is the place where the league has to step in to try to preserve what we like about baseball. And I think that some of the things that we're saying, I, I know I wrote about this last October and we may have talked about it then, the disappearance of the starter who is kind of the central figure of each game that you can just track as his pitch count climbs and as he has to find ways to get out the hitters who've already seen him once or twice. We're losing that and we're kind of just entering this area where every pitcher is more and more falling into this middle ground of not going eight innings and maybe not going even one inning or less than one inning, but maybe everyone's going to be in like the two to four inning range more and more in the future. So I think that's kind of where we're heading, where you'll still have certain aces who can actually do that. But for the most part, you're just going to have guys who can maybe go once through the lineup and everyone will just sort of blend together. Uh, and I think in terms of what we'll see going forward with the two to four innings idea, we're seeing that 
some in the minors, like the Houston Astros, would piggyback starters. And instead of just having one guy go seven innings, they'd have you know two guys go three innings each. And they haven't really adopted that to the major league level yet. But I wonder if, as we see players who have maybe grown up being more used to that, if they'll be more amenable to that idea in the majors. I think that's one of the reasons that Tampa Bay's opener idea uh, caught on last year because the young guys who were they were disrupting from the rotation, like Ryan Yarbrough and Ronnie Chirinos, those guys weren't established major league starters. It's a lot easier to tell a young 22-year-old coming up from AAA, hey, we're going to use you this way, as opposed to going to someone who, even if he isn't a star, like, you know, I'll use your guy, Lance Lynn, as an example, Michael. Like, it's easier to do that than to tell Lance Lynn, hey, we're going to put you in in the second inning and have you throw four innings. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. as we see the next generation who's grown up playing this way or at least has watched this idea expand, maybe that will, you know, yield even accelerated adoption of the these For Madison Bumgarner, right? I think someone recently asked him how he would feel about having an opener in his game, and he was just like, no. <laughs> so, Is there a more predictable response you could get from any major <laughs> league pitcher? Not. <laughs> like, I think if I had to pick anybody in Major League Baseball to, like, I need a quote that's against the opener, who would <laughs> right. I go to? Madison Bumgarner would be off the board within the first three picks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Zach, I mean, you said the, you know, the the Astros experimented with piggyback starters in the minor leagues and haven't really used it in the major leagues, but what they've come up with is a bunch of players who, you know, not all these guys came up through their system, but how many effective multi-inning relievers uh, have the Astros uh, developed in the past few years, you know, from former starters, Davinsky, McHugh, Brad Peacock, Josh James, like they've got a bunch of guys who can do what Ben said, turn over a lineup once out of the pen and then um, and back off. And even then, you know, sometimes you see them vary the role. Davinsky didn't go long as much last year as he did uh, in previous seasons, for instance. Um, anyway, uh, Ben, I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier. Uh, I'm curious if I guess this was as recently as five years ago, we were talking about like Ray Searage is the miracle pitching coach for the, uh, for the pirates. And, you Mm -hmm. know, you think about all pirates pitchers throw the, throw the sinker and all the, uh, um, all Cardinals pitchers under Dave Duncan, they, they learn the splitter and all get ground balls. All the twins pitchers pitch to contact. Don Cooper teaches all the white Sox pitchers, the cutter, um, you know, with the, the rise of data and I'm interested to know in, in, the course of researching your book, have we seen more tailor-made uh, approaches to individual pitchers in- instead of like an organizational top-down, this is how we think we can teach pitchers to uh, to perform the best? Yeah, I would say so. And you saw that, for instance, when Garrett Cole went from Pittsburgh to Houston, and it didn't even take being a- an insider to know, oh, okay, they're not going to try to force him into this box anymore. They're just going to let him throw his four-seamer and his breaking stuff, and he's going to be nasty. And he was. And he said, you know, we talked to him for the book, and he talked about the meeting he had with the Astros when he got there. And they were like, you're Garrett Cole. You should be doing this and that, and this is your best pitch. And he was just like, no one ever told me this. So I think that you are seeing less of a one-size-fits-all philosophy. You definitely still see preferences, I I think, on the parts of some teams, like the Astros obviously like to go and get high spin rate guys like Verlander or like Ryan Presley, for instance. So there is still a, a preference there. But I think if you are not that type of pitcher, 
They're not going to try to force you to be that type of pitcher. And it's interesting because we heard Sonny Gray say just last week, or at least imply that that's kind of what the Yankees did, that the Yankees like sliders. So a lot of the analytical teams like sliders. They're really effective pitches on the whole. And Gray was sort of suggesting that the Yankees were telling him, hey, throw more sliders, even though his slider is not very good and he wasn't comfortable throwing it. And I don't know what the actual truth there was. So some of this is probably still going on where you have a a template for how you think pitchers should pitch. And maybe you try too hard to force certain guys into that box. On the other hand, some guys just are resistant to change and maybe it actually would benefit them if they really embraced it. But that's another thing I heard working on the book is that you can list all of these guys, especially on the Astros who went from one team to another and they adopted this new idea and they reached a new level of performance. But you can't tell before you actually acquire that player whether he is going to be open-minded and receptive to this or whether he's just going to say, nope, I'm going to stick with what got me here because you can understand why you would not want to jeopardize a major league career for the possibility of being even better. Once you're there, once you're making lots of money, there is an urge to just stick with what worked well enough for you to get there. That that sort of plays into something that uh, Swarzak told me um, that you know, it makes it easier the the amount of data like that uh, that teams have, or you know, or video evidence. Like athletes will trust empirical evidence if it, they could say, you know, your fat your curveball spinning better when you do this, or if you move your hands in such and such a way, uh, you command it better. You know, and um, he says, there, you know, there's still guys who don't like to have too much information. Ironically, the guy he, he singled out was former podcast guest, uh, Glenn Perkins, <laughs> who is, you know, is like a, or was like a saber metric, yeah. uh, darling, but he said Perkins didn't like to watch video cause he, you know, he wanted to just stick to his game plan. And so he'd only like really get into video if he was completely unfamiliar with the hitter just to look at the hitters tendencies. And so, you know, every pitcher is still different, but it's, it goes back to the coaching. It's easier to, to get buy in, you know, there's more authority when there's more information. And I think, you know, everybody, well, regrettably not everybody, but I, but I think most people, uh, if confronted with numbers or, or video evidence, will will be more prone to trust that than just like, this is the way we've always done it. And so, you know, not only does that make it more effective, but it's, it's a better teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really matters how you deliver that message. Obviously, like the Astros are reputed to be really effective at just framing this message when they want someone to do something differently. They have heat maps and they have video and they have a whole presentation and players I spoke to were really impressed by how they laid all of that out in a very digestible way. Even so, I I talked to Ryan Presley about the meeting he had with the Astros when he came over from the Twins at the trade deadline last year. And he said it was kind of going over his head and there were some numbers guys there and it was, you know, X, Y axes. And he was just like, guys, just tell me what to throw. And he, and then they told him and he did. And obviously you have to have that mindset where you're willing to just take that advice. But Ryan Presley was, you know, like nearing 30 and kind of a generic reliever for most of his career. And so he wanted that information, whereas someone else might not. But it really depends on the player. And so it, it does have to be personally tailored, as you're saying. So let's sort of swing back to the usage pattern as we wrap this up. Zach, you know, one one other thing that uh, has really stuck out to me over the course of the past few years, and, you know, it's the Andrew Millerization of baseball, the valorization of high leverage relief pitching 
uh, as opposed to just racking up saves. And this is you know something that came up in the conversations I was having that like the bullpen needs to be a unit, and you know it it helps bring the the unit together when guys who have traditionally been closers say, okay, if I'm more useful in the seventh, then that's you know then that's where I'm going to pitch. And you know there's a separation. Not only are we seeing like the erosion of the traditional starter, but there's a separation between the idea of a closer and the idea of a relief ace. And I think this has kind of followed the same trend as we've seen with starters. We still have the guys, the the elites at the top, just like you have Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer in the rotation. You still have Araldis Chapman and Kenley Jansen and Edwin Diaz last year, who had over 50 saves, who are still just basically pitching in the ninth innings. When, you know, we saw Kenley Jansen and Araldis Chapman try to pitch earlier than that in the World Series, and it didn't work out so well. Uh, but we see those guys still racking up saves, but I think just below them is where you see this really grand change taking place. I looked last season, the primary save-getter for each team, so whoever had the most saves, add that total all up, and they collected just about 60% of saves. And that's the lowest mark ever since the institution of the one-inning closer. Just two years ago, it was up in the high 60s. So we've really, really seen a rapid change with that. And I think that's part of what you're saying, where like the Phillies are a good example last year. Uh, Gabe Kapler came in saying he wasn't going to have a designated closer and he didn't quite get as adventurous as I think some people thought the Phillies might, but they still had a bunch of guys getting a bunch of different saves and heading into this season after they signed David Robertson. Normally when a team signs someone like Robertson in free agency, you expect them to give him the closers role, but it's pretty uh, conceivable that he'll pitch as many seventh innings as ninth innings. So that makes it like f- harder on fantasy rosters when you're having to try and pick and choose guys getting saves, but it's a more optimal way to distribute those relief mm-hmm. innings. And look at what the Red Sox are doing. That's something I'm writing about this week. Their bullpen is essentially almost entirely devoid of saves. They have Tyler Thornburg, who I, I think has 13 career saves. Their entire projected opening day bullpen has a total of 15 career saves up to this point. And obviously they have not, seem to be interested in bringing back Craig Kimbrell, which might be because of his demands, but might also just be because they feel like this is fine. They found a a bunch of pretty good arms. They got through last October when we were all thinking, oh, their bullpen is going to be their Achilles heel. They were just fine. And now they're going into this season without an established save getter. And so, yeah, I, I think there's less emphasis on saves. Maybe that is something that goes back a few years, but Obviously, especially since the the Miller experiment, I think we have seen mm-hmm. certain guys just you know being pushed. Uh, you saw Josh Hader, for instance, last year being the the new archetype for that. Just you can bring him in at any point; he can go two or three innings at times. And we saw what a weapon he was in October. I do wonder. Do you think that the Andrew Miller role? Well, first of all. I wonder how long, how much longer we'll be calling it the Andrew yeah. Miller role, but do you think that's a sustainable model for a lot of pitchers? You saw Mike mention Chris Davinsky, who was used that way for basically half a season, and then the Astros cut back on his innings. Josh Hader, especially down the stretch last year, the Brewers were a lot more cautious with his usage, not throwing him on back-to-back days, etc. Do you think that this is a role that pitchers can adopt for years at a time, or are teams like, is there interest in having a pitcher like this going to clash with their interest in making sure that guys stay healthy the whole time? 
Yeah, I think they can. That, that can be a sustainable role. I mean, it's not like closers have traditionally been, you know, plug and play for ten years at a time. Anyway, um, I think there's a certain type of pitcher who, if you manage the usage right, and I think this is, you know, the Indians early in in Miller's career there uh, managed him really well. Uh, you know, making sure if he warms up, he gets in and, you know, making sure the communication's right and making sure that uh, they're looking after him and not overusing him. You know, there are some pitchers, you know, Hayter, Miller. Um, it's uh, honestly, I I like that that there are two defined relief ace roles now because there are guys, you know, the, the Indians are one of the best examples of this where they had the traditional closer in Cody Allen and then Miller who could come in and pitch for multiple innings at a time or, or, um, you know, sort of shut down those middle innings. And I think that's the new template for broader bullpen success where you need a closer, but you also need an Andrew Miller type. Um, but anyway, like, I think if you're careful about it, we've seen not to, you guys are going to groan, but that's how college relief aces work. Like they come in and pitch twice a week for multiple innings at a time. And, you know, it's only a three-year college career, but that's, it, it's no more dangerous than than being a one-inning closer if you know, if you're properly prepared for it. So, you know, I think that you know, watching Miller wear down last year, maybe being worried about, you know, or the the Brewers being cautious with with Hater. Like, I think we're. It would be easy to say that uh, that these guys wear down and sort of single that out without zooming out and saying, well, all relief pitchers are unpredictable. Like mm-hmm. that's the the central thesis of of taking down the, you know, the one inning closer from the 80s. That's, you know, all you know, relief pitchers aren't fungible, but they're they're unpredictable. Yeah. And, you know, you can you can have uh, you know, one or two the other thing is you can have one or two bad outings and it'll ruin your entire season stats. Um just because they don't throw that many innings. So, you know, it's I I I don't really see any reason why it couldn't be sustainable if if you're smart mm-hmm. about it. And even if relievers are unpredictable individually, it's less unpredictable when you have 12 guys who can be good enough for mm-hmm. your big league bullpen. So it's just sort of a, a strength in numbers kind of thing. One guy falls and you just call up the next guy from AAA. Yeah. Speaking of which, it does warm the cockles of my heart that the Red Sox are still holding out hope for Tyler Thornburg. <laughs> uh, see, that that is one of baseball's great traditions. <laughs> right. And Carson Smith, maybe one of these days. Yeah, Carson Smith. Where is Carson <laughs> Smith? He's, uh, is he still in the Red Sox he is. system? He's, he's trying or to come he... back from injury, but uh, is not back yet. Uh, we shouldn't laugh. We shouldn't no. laugh. All right. Uh, anything else you guys want to uh, bring up before we, we wrap this up? I don't think so. I'm just building up my appetite for that chicken tender. All right. Uh, so there will be there will definitely be chicken in our future. Uh, but uh, for now, I hope that all you out there enjoyed this series. Um, we're obviously going to be all be writing about uh, these various trends as the the season approaches and throughout the season. So uh, you know, I hope you you got the most out of it. Thanks for for uh, joining me, guys. Thank you. Until next time. That will just about do it for this episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Ben and Zach uh, for coming on today. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. And thank you to Alex Rodriguez, Ryan Presley, and Adam Jones for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. 
Baseball Express has one of the broadest selections of baseball equipment available. They provide the best performance gear at reasonable prices for ball players of all ages and skill levels. And they carry all the major brands, Easton, Louisville Slugger, Rawlings, Wilson, New Balance, DiMarini, and more. Visit BaseballExpress.com today for a special offer available only to listeners of the Ringer MLB show. Enter promo code RINGER20 for 20% off your order. That's promo code RINGER20 for 20% off at BaseballExpress.com. 